1: So I chose Magnolia because I think it's a movie that is engaging in really interesting ways with the aftermath of of being in a dysfunctional family, Um, themes of familial violence and neglect, and the ways that individuals cope with experiencing those things in adulthood, Mm -hmm. Um, the way that the past crops up in the present, Um, that's a theme of my work and something that I'm really interested in.
2: Welcome back to Open Form. I'm Michael Denzel Smith. The longtime host of the TV quiz show, What Do Kids Know?, has just learned that he has cancer. The current, reluctant child star of the show, whose knowledge is vast and impressive for a preteen, has to pee really badly. A former star of the show has spent all the money he doesn't have on braces in hopes of winning the affection of a local bartender. The show's original producer is on his deathbed, and his wife is spiraling about the false nature of their marriage. The caretaker has been tasked with finding the producer's estranged son, who is a minor celebrity peddling self-help tapes to men who shouldn't be let anywhere near the women they're learning to manipulate. This week's film is Magnolia, and it was chosen by Chantal V. Johnson, author of the novel Post Traumatic.
1: Um, I also think that it's a movie that ultimately is very much aligned with survivors and victims of the family.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Many of the characters are given a lot of, and and maybe too much, we can talk about this, uh, cinematic space to, for instance, go on long monologues, (laughs) you know, as, as Donnie does. Um, they're given space to like enact rage against their parental figures, um, which we see in the characters of Claudia and Frank, um, they're allowed to kind of explode with anger at their abusive fathers. Um, and I think growing up, that was rare for me to see a movie, uh, that was a popular film, um, Mm -hmm. or like a mass, you know, uh, you know, for a film for like mass consumption yeah. that was dealing with these themes in a way that I felt was aligned with survivors and 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 humanizing them yeah. um, and insisting that their point of view mattered. The other, and then, and then I also just love because I'm a big music fan yeah. I love that all of this is to is set to the music of Amy Mann, who <laughs> is who is one of who's one of our most underrated songwriters. Um, and in fact, Paul Thomas Anderson has said that he he was inspired by one of her songs, "Deathly," um, to 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 write this to write this movie, and he wanted to make her music central to the film. Yeah, um,
2: yeah. I you know as you said that. I've seen Magnolia probably two or three times at this point. Um I love Paul Thomas Anderson's films, but Magnolia, because of its three-hour runtime, is not one that <laughs> I like rewatch a lot. Yes. Um, but I I had not considered that perspective of the way that this is sort of like a reckoning with family and familial ties. And the abuse that takes place therein, I hadn't really thought of it, but it makes so much sense as you say it. Um, in thinking about the different characters that we have, because I think also part of it is that like what the film sets up for you, uh, in those first few scenes, uh, with the narrator and these sort of historical examples of like coincidence, mm-hmm. right? Like that you're you're primed for thinking of what are these like uh, serendipitous sort of connections that are being made between these characters and like how like all of this world is connected. And even as they experience different forms of tragedy, right? Like there's still various connections playing out that like one leads to the other. And then one, like, so I think that that was, that with a framing is sort mm-hmm. of like the way that I was consuming it. Um, but I, I I, also picked up on something else that I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about, but I did not immediately sort of register the familial part of it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, after we kind of locked down that we were going to watch this one, mm-hmm. I rewatched um, Hard Eight and Mm. Boogie Nights and so I wanted to do them sequentially so I did Heart 8 and Boogie Nights and what struck me was that both of those movies are kind of like about forming a surrogate family Mm. because your original one didn't work out (laughs) like in Heart 8 the guy is like you know adopting a new son, essentially, that he kind of becomes his mentor. Um, he adopts John C. Riley and a strangely cast Gwyneth Paltrow um, to be his new son and daughter. And it doesn't quite work out, but like mm-hmm. that's what he does. And then in Boogie Nights, it's a very similar thing where Dirk Diggler like leaves his mm-hmm. abusive parental home to find a chosen family amongst, you know, in the pornography industry. Yeah. And so then you have Magnolia coming third. And for me, when I watched it after watching those two, it was like, oh, so Magnolia shows you the reasons why people need to find mm-hmm. the chosen families <laughs> from yeah. from Heartache and, yeah. and, and Boogie Nights.
2: Interesting, interesting. Because on this watch of it, what I was taking note of more so was it felt like there's a sort of examination of like, fame but a particular kind of fame right Mm -hmm. and it's it's not a list fame that we're we've sort of like told that story over and over again it's this like particular localized fame right like like uh, a momentary fame uh striving for fame in some way like there's there's this like there's this way in which all of these very flawed characters like become obsessed with or are subjected to the dictates of what it means to become famous or the attempts to become famous
0: mm-hmm. that
2: play out in these various ways that are all that always sort of end up tragically right like ev- no one escapes what fame will have hath wrought and it and it's like it, it's not even something that like with the exception of one character the game show host right like maybe and mm-hmm. he's not even like particularly the biggest name in the world it's just he's been hosting the show for a long time like it's it's that there's there's something to there's something destructive inherent in seeking fame or the achievement of certain levels of fame that like don't inoculate you from a a regular life
0: (laughs)
1: yeah, yeah. And it also raises this kind of question, this pre me too question of like mm-hmm. of 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 what the entertainment industry is based upon. like mm-hmm. if the if the patriarch of the network, um, Earl Partridge, mm-hmm. is is, you know, he has committed this sin of abandoning his son mm-hmm. and abandoning his dying wife. You know how is that related to all of the like it's like this fruit of the poison tree idea mm-hmm. you know like the entire system is is tainted in part because it's built upon exploitation it's built upon kind of abandoning your family in pursuit of work or in pursuit of fame mm-hmm. um, like you said um and, and and abandoning your kind of ethical relationship to the people in your life in order to pursue something that's very selfish and, and and greedy
2: yeah and it's just the the various characters so like the the Tom Cruise character who I mean let's just stop to say I think this is just Tom Cruise's best performance that he's ever given right?
1: 100% like, agree
2: just it's phenomenal and I don't think that he's ever touched it it's just the way that like, yes uh, But you look at a character like that who has a particular kind of fame and like we can look at him as a sort of analog to an era of pickup artist and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But like in that particular time of like selling these quote unquote like self-help tapes and books to a, a specific set of people that he amasses an amount of fame within that world but it requires him a denial of his own past to per to create this persona, this character in order to achieve it. There's the, you know, the, the Donnie character who was famous as a child. And it's like, now how does he navigate living as an adult? Mm-hmm. Where, like he feels it's basically he's incapable of doing it. Like, the thing that he gets stuck on is like I have so much love I don't know how to to give it I don't know how to express it essentially but like he doesn't know how to like work right like, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. just navigate like being an adult and talking to how holding a conversation with someone else and then you start to make that connection to the character Stanley who is thrust into this because of his like immense intelligence but he's very shy, very reserved, very, very closed, right? But where's the support system? And he's able to see it at some point, but it comes at at a huge cost to him. I'm just saying that, like, there's so many different points at which all of these characters are wrestling with the, the expectation of fame and celebrity culture in these, like, ways that feel minor to us when we consider the largesse of celebrity.
1: Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I'm also interested in the way that because this movie is an ensemble Mm. and, and because of the way that it's edited and filmed, when you start talking about one character, I think we've both done it. You also then start Mm -hmm. talking about like the three other characters that you could like cluster them with. Yeah, And I just like, that's so interesting to me that we're both doing that. I feel like the film encourages you to do that. Like I'd love to talk about like, once after we get away from the coincidences, when we get into what is actually the movie, like that first six minutes is incredibly harried and kinetic
0: yeah. and
1: it's all to that Amy Mann song one mm. and we're being introduced to each of these characters with like 30 to 45 seconds and for me like that beginning I watched it a few times in preparation for this conversation and it struck me that it's like it's like a master class in quickly developing character
0: mm-hmm.
1: because he's just like he's you're you're immediately seeing Frank Mackey's you know, misogyny on TV. Yeah. And then that's connected to Claudia because the TV is playing in the bar. And mm-hmm. then she's doing Coke and having like mindless sex mm-hmm. at her apartment while she's watching, potentially watching her father's TV show. Mm-hmm. And then we go to him and he's like cheating on his wife with someone, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just like, and then we see Stanley and he's associated with all the books. And his father is like berating him and saying, I have to get to an audition. And it's just like, it's so fast and rapid fire. And I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to watch the movie for the first time without knowing how anyone's connected to each other. Like it just, it feels like the director is kind of just dominating you (laughs) and being like, I'm not gonna tell you, like you have to like pay attention or you're yeah. going to miss stuff. You're not going to know how these people are connected unless you pay attention.
2: Yeah. I can I can say from remembering my first time it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's exactly that. It's a demand that you pay attention. And I think that that's like it's interesting to think of that in terms of like being a 1999 demand when like like we're we're obsessed with the idea that people have a short attention spans now because of the internet because of like youtube because of social media that all we want is like quick things that like no in 1999 also paul thomas anderson is saying you have to sit down and you have to pay attention to this and Excuse me. I think that that's just the product of like every sort of generation believing that you know there's something uh that the the new generation is missing. <laughs> and mm. It's like there's some deficiency in the way that you go about things, and so it's like okay in 1999 you think okay well it's it's not. It's not going to be a big disaster movie. It's not going to be a big alien movie. You have to sit down and think about this. And it's like, well, that could be in response to any cultural moment in which we we think of. But I, yeah, I think I'm trying to. Th- I'm thinking now though about what you said with respect to it being like this family movie, but mm-hmm. it also being that like dissection of a certain type of fame and those things in conversation together in that like it feels like the one thing is supposed to be able to provide a level of support to help you survive the other right like you're supposed to be able to rely on family in order in those like deep bonds that keep you grounded that like are able to check you that are able to love and support you But in this film, it's basically like without any of that, with those bonds broken by various means, there's no chance of survival on the other side of any level of fame.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, each of the characters kind of have to eke out. I mean, I think it's an open question of how they each end up. How and whether they each end up eking out a way to survive? Mm-hmm. I do kind of feel like, like at least the 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 kind of the quartet of Stanley, Frank, Claudia, and Donnie, probably the characters that I'm the most interested in because mm-hmm. they play into my argument about the aftermath of <laughs> of mm-hmm. of abuse and neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they all have a kind of potentially hopeful, ending Mm. you know um I think we see we see dark sides of 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 all of their journeys but I do think that there's there's hope at the end for each of them um and I think I mean one thing that I love about the movie too is that it's it's not it's not forcing everyone to forgive
0: Mm. their
1: families but there is forgiveness in it you know some characters forgive and some don't you know, I don't think Claudia forgives her father for molesting her, yeah. but Frank does seem to forgive Earl,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, and they have that moment of of connection, like eye contact yeah. at the end. Um, but maybe Claudia forgives herself. You know, she doesn't necessarily forgive her father, but she forgives herself. There's that way that Jim kind of, I mean, he forgives Donnie for for committing a crime, (laughs) which we can, we can talk about the depiction of of the cop um, in the the movie as well. Um, But I think that the film is a bit kind of ambiguous or ambivalent about, about forgiveness, about reconciliation. It doesn't like totally promote it but it does, it does, you know, and that's the benefit of having so many characters is that you can take a single theme and you can explore it in, you know, myriad ways.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Do you want to talk about the depiction of the cow?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was, you know, it's, it's so interesting watching these movies now, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, it's, it's so clear that he's supposed that that in 1999 he's supposed to be a sympathetic figure mm. we know that john c riley and paul thomas anderson are friends and that paul c riley was in both of the movies that preceded magnolia mm. and that pta was always just trying to find roles for john c riley yeah um and i think the kind of the the bumbling cop is is kind of a a trope um and so he i think he is meant to provide some comedic relief Mm. um but in watching it now it's it's just interesting to see how how horrible he's being to everyone you know he's treating everyone horribly um you know, he's, he's, he's hitting on a woman that he's, you know, he's responding to a call at her house and she's clearly coked up. And then he arguably takes advantage of that by asking her out on a date, (laughs) you know, um, you know, he totally dismisses the young black kid who's trying to offer him clues to, as soon as I saw that little kid, I was like, okay, how magical is this Negro? Guy? <laughs> <laughs> like on the, my my magical Negro scale on a scale of one to ten, just how magical is he going to be? <laughs> I think he's like a four, maybe a four or a five. He's, pr- um, I mean, he, 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 he saves, he saves, right? Right,
0: exactly.
1: Yes. Okay. So maybe he's a six. <laughs> Oh man,
2: I would love to see the the magical Negro scale <laughs> like
1: that.
0: We I've invented
1: it here today. <laughs> we should apply it to other movies. Um, yeah, I think as
2: yes to everything that you're saying. I think that we're 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 meant to sympathize with him. It's just like this guy that's doing his best. He's like a little incompetent, but like, uh, who who among us, right? And then it's just like, well, who among us is incompetent, but also has a gun and is the license to kill. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, um, but I also found it in terms of thinking about that fame piece, it's like mm-hmm. he's not famous, right? Mm-hmm. But what he does do is narrate. His experience, mm-hmm. as if he's on an episode of Cops, yes, right. And I think that you like, when you're thinking about that, you think about the the level of influence then on the idea that your your own subjective narrative is like is going to be interesting enough to other people. That they would want to hear your thoughts about about it, right? And I'm like, I'm a writer of nonfiction, and I like put myself in there, and so I'm not acting as if like I'm, you know, uh, I'm absolved in this. The idea that like, oh yeah, of course you want to hear from me, but <laughs> but like, to think that the banality of his job, because like everything that he does is really banal, right? Like he's just sort of answering calls that have no, that have no bearing on anyone's actual safety right like like there's nothing there but he be- he's trying to convince himself of his own importance by narrating it as the way that he's seen on this popular television show
1: yeah it's interesting because i didn't quite understand what that narration was because at the mm. beginning it felt like it was a personal ad that he was, yeah. he was saying that he wants to meet some. So I just thought that he was recording it for a personal ad. But then when he comes back at the end and he's monologuing about forgiveness, I was like, wait, yeah. is this, is this not is a personal, the
2: personal ad? ad. Okay. There is the personal yeah. ad that he's like recording to find a date, right? Yeah. Like he is yeah. doing that part, but then he's just sort of sitting in his car and riding down the street and narrating like what he thinks about the job and like all of these ideas. And it's like, I don't know, like, who cares? Like, who exactly. Cares exactly.
1: Yeah. Whereas, like, whereas I loved, I loved that Donny got all of the space to just be a sad sack, drunken at <sighs> the bar, delivering monologues. Like, I actually did care about his yeah. monologues, and I and I loved, I I loved his whole arc. I loved that character so much. Mm. I had forgotten how much I loved it. I loved that he's constantly listening to that song, Dreams, um, by Gabrielle. Like it was just all, all of it was pitch perfect and amazing. The scene when we first see Brad's braces
0: mm. and
1: then um, what's the actor's name? Michael C. Hall, is that his name? The guy who plays Donnie? I don't remember his name, but oh, um,
2: uh, 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 God.
1: They all have
0: three names, everybody, everybody.
1: everybody, everybody. uh, but he as soon as he sees brad we see brad's braces and this is like i don't know this is an hour into the movie so i also love that like you see you see him getting fitted for the braces in the beginning you have no idea why because his teeth are perfect and then it's like an hour later we see Mm. that he's like in love with this himbo who has braces and when we see the braces then donnie licks his teeth Mm-hmm. and it's i mean i got teary eyed <laughs> <laughs> i was i was so touched and then that whole scene with him at the bar and his like the nemesis who can, who can give Brad what he needs, which is money, which, Don- mm-hmm. which is like what Donnie doesn't have. Yeah. And they're engaged in these kind of philosophical debates that you can get into at the bar with, with, with alcoholics, you know? Mm-hmm. Of like, uh, you know, the, the, the villain, his nemesis is very much, he has a philosophy that's very similar to Frank Mackey of like, you know, you have to get over the past. Mm-hmm. You have to just get over it. Like you're being pathetic. And Donnie is insisting that that he has a right to be marooned on -hmm. the past, you know, because of all of these horrible things that have happened to him. Um, And in the end, you know, his arc is hopefully that he can kind of get get over that and move Mm -hmm. beyond that. But I love that he's given the space to like, use his intellect to, you know, modify all of those dumb quotations that the villain is coming at him with you know um where he's like he's like who was it that said that um you know a genius is a man who can only be ruined by himself mm-hmm. you know and Donnie's like well but but that person didn't have parents who took him <laughs> you know, like his parents didn't shit on him and he, they didn't take all of his money and and he wasn't electrocuted by lightning you know yeah. so for me it just hit so hard on the kind of the, the way that people who have experienced a lot of stuff really can get stuck on that yeah. and, and feel like, you know, you can almost feel like you're, you're special or you're, you've been chosen, you know, mm-hmm. he's talking about how he's been struck by lightning. Like that doesn't happen to everybody. Like I was struck by lightning because he, he's trying to find meaning. Mm-hmm. He's trying to find a narrative to understand yeah. why me, why was I struck by lightning? Is it because I'm special? I have to be special. Right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, maybe, but but maybe not.
2: <laughs> Probably, not
1: <right? laughs> Probably not. Probably
2: not. Right? Probably not. Yeah. Um, there is I mean it is a question that I think like most of us wrestle with in terms of how much are we defined by our history. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard to it's hard to ask that question. Um in the social and political context that we live in and and, and only allow it to live as an individual question right because we have to account for the the ways in which history does inform the ways in which we interact with one another now the, the ways that we have built structures and norms and mores that like dictate the way that our relationships play out with one another now, like we, we have to account for that. But then when we individualize it, what we're asking is, how much are you going to allow the, your history, your past to dictate how you move forward? And that's, it becomes tricky because it's like, yes, I am a product of my past. I am a product of my childhood, but I also know that like there has to there have to be ways to move beyond it, but how to move beyond it? I mean, I talk to my therapist about this all the time. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, and it's just it's such a tough one to to sort of unpack. And I think that like each character here is trying to wrestle with that question in their own ways.
1: For sure. And it's interesting to me to see the little acts of rebellion that start to pop up. Like mm-hmm. I, and I think they kind of start to crop up maybe in the second half or the, 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 the last third, the one I'm thinking about in particular is when Stanley um, the the little kid after he pees mm-hmm. himself yeah. and he just refuses to, to go up and compete. Mm-hmm. And that for me was like this moment of like, And it's a it's an utterly beautiful moment. It's beautifully filmed. It reminded me of I was just telling my partner this that I realized when rewatching it that he looks like um, the actress who plays Joan of Arc in Mm. Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. I actually have have her on my T-shirt, but she you know in that movie she has a bowl cut. Mm -hmm. and she that movie is about Joan of Arc's trial and Mm -hmm. it's based on transcripts of her trial and she's in shackles and it's a silent movie and so much of it is just close-ups of her face Uh. and she has a bowl cut and like a round collar and Stanley is wearing a turtleneck and he has a bowl cut and there's just these this extreme close-up on his face as he starts to begin like a kind of counter interrogation mm. of Jimmy Gator and he delivers his monologue of like you know i'm i'm not a prop i'm not a doll you know you think that you can laugh at me why because i'm smart why do you do that jimmy like why <laughs> you no. know and it was just this beautiful powerful i also love that that show the 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 quiz show is called yeah. what do kids know
0: what do kids which i think know. is
1: very on the nose because it turns out kids kids in this movie know a lot they, they know, know for so instance much. like when they're being abused you know? <laughs> i love that it's literally adults versus children yeah which is again that's like one of the themes of the movie it's yeah. so on the nose it's so there's so many things about this movie where it's like they're kind of imperfections or it's like too much, but it doesn't matter. Like, I love that this movie isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. I love that there's an Amy Mann sing-along and I love that that Frogs, <laughs> rain from the sky like can we talk about those two things i was gonna ask creative choices
2: along because i feel like that's the i feel like the sing-along is the dividing point for a lot of critics right (laughs)
1: like
2: that that they're like oh yeah this is great this is genius until we get to the sing along. well
1: it's either sing-along or frogs (laughs) you know you either can't handle one of those (laughs) i love both so for me there's this kind of camp aspect to it that i really mm-hmm. that i really just like and i think i mean i'm so curious what you think but i just both the sing along and the frogs they're both ways of kind of almost like <laughs> pivoting into another genre mm. <clears throat> and and so i think that's part of why people might not like it but i guess yeah. for me like it was already melodrama mm-hmm. from the beginning when we these constant yeah. violins. Yes. You know, it's just literally mm-hmm. like aggressive, speedy, uh anxiety induci- inducing violins and like the blasting Amy Mann music. Like there's mm-hmm. often scenes where if you're not watching it with closed captioning on, you can't hear the dialogue. Yeah. Because the music is so loud um and but for me i loved the i loved this thing along i mean it's like who among us i love that it begins with claudia like you know preparing to do lines of coke and she's just sitting in the dark crying singing to amy man i mean who hasn't done that (laughs) (laughs) you know who hasn't been sitting in the dark crying listening to amy man doing drugs i mean come on (laughs) When when the dying man the dying man, the Jason Robarts character, when he's singing it from the bed, that's getting to a point of like, this is a bit ridiculous. <laughs>
2: I, I think this is where I come down, is that like I I'm fine with the sing-along. I think the execution isn't totally there. Mm just because i feel like we catch them at moments that i'm i'm not totally sure that all of them would be singing right like sure. um and so but i'm i'm fine like it doesn't detract at all i love the frogs right like i just love i i love that that moment of like the feeling of total absurdity with it right and but that it and it also there's that moment that it there's a close there's a there's a shot of something on the wall like a poster or something and it says but it did happen and I'm just and it's just like yeah strange shit just happens sometimes Mm -hmm. and you can't explain it you can't like if you weren't there it's really hard to understand that it happened. If you were there when it happened and you're trying to explain it to someone, they're going to think of you as insane, but strange shit just happens sometimes and there's no accounting for it. And I think that that's really what it is to me, is just being like, look, We can talk about the coincidences and all of this stuff, but like also shit just happens. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just raining frogs. And sometimes that, that shit just happening is destructive and it's disruptive of your life. And it's like, I have no idea how this got here. I don't know how I've managed to be in this situation. And then you have to pick up from it how do you pick up from raining frogs, right? Like <laughs> that, that's really a question and you can make that applicable across uh, a minimum of questions in your life where you're just like, why? Why would this happen? And it's like, yeah. because, just because.
1: Yeah, and I love I love some of the plot function that it has.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: Like it keeps Jimmy Gator from committing suicide because mm-hmm. the frog hits the gun. It forces Donnie to fall on his face, thus ironically destroying the braces <laughs> that, he, that he just got. And then Jim is then like allowed to save him. So mm-hmm. he's like finally being the cop that he wants to be. And then it allows Stanley, that, that's just one of my favorite scenes again. Where we go back to stanley who's broken into the library of the school Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: is just looking out calmly dispassionately and saying this is a thing that happens because he's read about it Mm -hmm. it's so beautiful to me (laughs) that he's just like this happens this is a thing that happens." happens you know and whether he's talking about like literal frogs falling or what you're talking about the larger thing of like things happening that are out of your control yeah you know but he's just wisely beyond his years saying this is a thing, that it's a thing that happens it's so beautiful and i also think it's like i don't know like i don't really know much about religion so i don't know anything about frogs raining from the sky though i do know that that's in the bible <laughs> yeah. but to me it's like showing that the director is god
0: mm. because
1: he's like now i can just make frog i can literally just decide to put frogs raining from the sky in my yeah. movie and i can do that And that is a thing that I can do after I did Boogie Nights and I get (laughs) final cut and total creative control.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Chantal, what's one lasting image that sticks with you from Magnolia?
1: Ooh, yeah, I think there, I think, so I've talked about a few, um, like I said, I love the reveal of of Brad's braces for some reason. I just thought Mm -hmm. that that was just so wonderful. Um, and the way it was so far away in time from from Donnie getting fitted for his braces. I also talked about Stanley's beautiful face and the Joan of Arc um, reference, and that also fits into my idea of these children and adult children of abuse and neglect being kind of like revolutionary figures, you know, to the extent that he's being compared to visually compared to to Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's interesting to me and that really works. Um, And then when I was just watching it, I had forgotten how it ends. I had forgotten that it ends with um, Jim coming into Claudia's room, which is an echo of the way that her father came into her Mm -hmm. room at the beginning of the movie which is like you know a survivor victim's worst nightmare is like seeing yeah. the person who <clears throat> assaulted you in your bedroom yeah and she and she violently raged against him when that happened but at the end of the film jim comes into her room and sits on her bed which she allows mm-hmm. and he delivers a monologue to her about how like he's not going to he, he like she shouldn't talk about herself so negatively she's she's a sweet and smart and wonderful person and he's gonna like be there for her and potentially gonna be this source of secure love and attachment Mm -hmm. and then and now again because there's music playing you kind of don't hear that (laughs) unless you have to watch it with the i'm I'm just like how did this work in the theater exactly (laughs) i don't even know but but the the final image of the movie is the survivor of sexual abuse looking into the camera and smiling like she breaks the fourth wall and she smiles and so it's just this it's this wonderful hopeful moment that like maybe she's gonna get she's gonna get some of that love and security that she didn't get in childhood um and it's just so beautiful and I had completely forgotten that it ends like that and just utterly loved it
2: Okay, so these are meant to be quick questions, but they never are for people.
0: Yes.
1: What is
2: your all-time favorite film?
1: Uh, I have no idea. I mean, this is so hard. There's there's, there's 20, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how anyone answers that movie or answers that question. I will say, like, the movies that I rewatch over and over, North by Northwest is one. Mm-hmm. I think it's just completely rewatchable it's Mm -hmm. very cozy um it inspired so much of contemporary cinema so every time i watch it i realize that like oh so and so i think was inspired by this like some of those chase scenes and some of the cinematography Um, it's just a beautiful movie there's martinis in it and just like great great costuming (laughs) Um, it's it's wonderful um And then, you know, there's just a bunch of romantic comedies that I always rewatch. I probably watch Keeping the Faith (laughs) once a year, which is just a random, but it's Keeping the Faith is one of my favorite uh, movies about friendship and New York and romance. And it's a, it's just a wonderful feel good movie. Um, And there are like dozens of others.
2: Yeah. And then lastly, uh, What's a film that best captures the idea of family for you?
1: I mean I guess I have a few answers because I don't like a lot of movies that are about nuclear bio families. I I really don't. So I tend to gravitate more towards the kind of chosen family, queer family uh-huh movies. Um, Almodovar is great at that. I mean, he kind of mixes the two bio family and then like people, orphans and friends and, you know, queer people that are just all coming together to be a family. So that's, that's, you know, and the kind of like boys on the side, like women are escaping abusers (laughs) and the patriarchy and forming their own kind of uh, collective, uh, I like that kind of stuff. But in terms of biofamilies, a couple of movies come to mind. One is Secrets and Lies mm. um by Mike Lee, mm. um which is a really fantastic movie about family. Um, it's about a middle class black British woman going to find her birth mother, who mm-hmm. is a white working class woman who has a very dysfunctional family. Um, And so it's very interesting because the black woman is higher class than her white mother, I Mm -hmm. love that. Um, And she's coming into this incredibly dysfunctional white family Um, Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting. Um, And then there's this German film called Tony Erdmann that Mm -hmm. came out in 2016, which is about a woman and her relationship with her estranged father who's trying to kind of win her back and he is a an actor and a prankster Mm. um and so he takes on disguises to get back into her life Mm. um and it's really funny and beautiful and touching um and so i would say i would say all of those
2: (laughs) uh chantal thanks so much for joining me
1: thanks so much for having me on this was a wonderful conversation
2: Thanks for listening to Open Form, a podcast from LitHub Radio, produced by Eliza Smith and Justin Alvarez, and hosted by me, Michael Denzel Smith. Feel free to like, comment, and subscribe to Open Form wherever you get your podcasts, and/or sign up for the LitHub newsletter to stay up to date on our latest episodes. If you're enjoying what you hear, share Open Form with a friend or on social media. Next week, what do our dreams have to say about the beginning and end of civilization?